Our scripture for today is found in Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 4. Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for one's wife to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become joined one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Trevor. Well, good morning, Christ community. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Reed Kappel. And it's a joy uh, to be here this morning. Um, and for those of you who, who may not know, my wife, Meg, and I, we just welcomed in our, our new baby boy into the world. Uh, I think I have a picture of him up here somewhere. There's, this, is, uh, this is Edmund Reed Kappel, and he was born on July 28th. And so he's doing well, Meg is doing well. And so we are, we're thrilled to have a boy in our home. We don't know what to do with him. Uh, we have all girls, and so I've already referred to him as she multiple times, like... <laughs> She's a beautiful boy, isn't she? Uh, so I'm sure that'll be very confusing. But, uh, but we're just, yeah, we are thrilled that he's home, that he's here. And so uh, we look forward to, to having you meet him uh, when he arrives sometime here at church. So, um, and and if, you, if you've had kids, if you, you know what it's like to, to raise kids, having kids is one of those situations where you, you read books, you're, you're prepared. You're like, yeah, I've read like two blogs. I'm ready to have a child. Like, and nothing can prepare you for having a child. You have no idea what you're getting into when a kid enters your home. And then there are a lot of things like this in our lives where we, we think we know what we're getting into, but the moment arises and we have no idea what we've gotten ourselves into. And, and one such situation for me, I remember, was when I ran my first half marathon. It was about six years ago, six, seven years ago. It was running with the cows uh, marathon out in like Lewisburg. So it was like me and 12 cows and four people. And, and I, I was not a runner growing up. Uh, and so I was trying to prepare and train. I got in a little schedule, but nothing prepared me for what this was going to do to my body. And so the day of the race, I get ready. Uh, just to tell you how ridiculous I was, I ate at Fazoli's the night before. Yeah, that's how I carbo-loaded with like disgusting yeah, yeah, just I won't go into detail in case somebody works with Fazoli's here. But um, so the day of the race is here. I've got like eight pounds of Fazoli in me and I'm ready to run. And I'm actually feeling pretty good about mile marker nine. I'm feeling pretty good, running this consistent pace. I'm not talking to anybody. And then all of a sudden this, this guy Steve shows up. And Steve comes running up from behind me. He's like, hey buddy, how's it going? This is your first race. What's your name? Hey, what's your brother's name? Like, he's asking me these questions. I'm like, who are you? I don't want to have a conversation. I can't, can't waste the energy. So he's asking me about my, who I am, how I train. I'm like, Steve, I don't know who you are, you know, I'm just trying not to die. And so he's like, hey, buddy, how about you and me? These last three miles, let's give it all we can, just you and me, let's keep going, there's the finish line. And so this guy is pushing me, he's like, let's go. I'm like, okay, Steve, all right. And, and we're getting there close to the finish line. I am running faster than I have ever run in my training schedule so far. My body is feeling good. Fazoli's is getting closer and closer to the entrance, and I I'm, I'm, don't know what to do. And so we get to the finish line, 100 yards, like, everything you got, Reed, let's go. I was like, okay, Steve. And I get, and here's the thing, if you've seen races, when people across the finish line, what do they do? Right? Because you have this chip in your shoe, and so there's an announcer who can say, hey, Reed Kappel from Kansas City, put your arms up. I couldn't put my arms up. As I'm crossing the finish line, instead of this, I'm going like this, and Fazoli's, I uh, was reintroduced to Fazoli's on the finish line, which is great. And so now you all have this 
beautiful image in your mind right now. But this, the point is that this story, this race, I had no idea what I was getting into. I had no idea what I was prepared for. And Steve, wherever he is, uh, forced me to do something that I was not prepared for. Now, thankfully, it didn't like kill my running career. I ran again, and I thankfully I did not eat a Fazoli's uh, the day before the race. But I share this story because we all have these situations where we think we know what we're getting into. But when the moment arises, we have no idea what we have gotten ourselves into, actually. And this is true of so many things, but it is also true of the topic that Jesus actually introduces us to and responds to in Matthew 19. And that is the issues of marriage, divorce, and singleness. That these three issues are issues that we think we know what we're getting into, but we have no idea what we're getting into when it comes to marriage, to divorce, and to singleness. Now, if you've been with us, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, and we come to this place in Matthew 19 where Jesus, his reputation is increasing. People are hearing about him, his ministry is becoming much more influential, and along with it, the agitation and anger in the Pharisees is also increasing, and they're trying to ruin Jesus' reputation. And they, in, they kind of up their game, so to speak, in Matthew 19 by trying to trap Jesus with this kind of theological question to get him to show that there's a contradiction in the, in the teachings of Scripture. And when we come to Matthew 19, we come to see a topic that is very much a sensitive issue. When we talk about marriage, we talk about divorce, we talk about singleness, these issues are very real and personal to us. And, and they're issues that, that relate to each and every one of us. And so I want to make sure that, I, that I'm speaking to everyone here. No one in this room should tune out. Because this is a message that speaks to each of us, whether you're young, whether you're the opposite of young, whether you're married, single, divorced, widowed. This issue relates to all of us because God has created us as communal creatures. And our relationships bleed into other relationships. And there's a sense in which the health and vitality of my marriage impacts you and your relationships, and vice versa. And so we should all have a vested interest in the issues of marriage, divorce, and singleness. And, and I want to say just as a side note, this issue, this is not a soapbox issue. This is not something that we like, have been waiting for to kind of hammer into the people of our church. But we are coming to this issue because Jesus addresses it. And because we love Jesus and we love his word, we're going to talk about the things Jesus talks about. As difficult and as uncomfortable as it's going to be, we have to be faithful to the teachings of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 19 and buckle up because we're going to deal with some pretty intense and sensitive issues here. And what we're going to see, Jesus is going to show us as he is showing us what we're getting into with marriage, divorce, and singleness. We're going to look at four things. And then we're going to see marriage revealed, marriage ruptured, Marriage and singleness redeemed, and marriage finally replaced. Marriage revealed, marriage ruptured, marriage and singleness redeemed, and marriage replaced. So just to kind of set the context, though, for us, where we are in Matthew 19, like I said, Jesus' reputation is increasing, the Pharisees are trying to trap him, and they ask him this theological question about divorce. And they're asking him if it is okay, if it is permissible for a man to divorce his wife. And so how does Jesus respond? He responds by going all the way back to the beginning when marriage was first revealed. And he responds in this way in verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
Now, the reason Jesus answers in this way, notice that he goes all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to when marriage was revealed. And he does this because Jesus is showing us that marriage, like all things, if we fail to see why something was created, why something was invented, we will miss out on the joy that that thing brings, but we also increase the chance of ourselves harming that thing and bringing harm to ourselves. This is true of, of all things in life. Like a car engine is great for moving your car, getting you from point A to point B. It's a terrible thing to use to grill food. Like you shouldn't grill food on a car engine. You might be able to get it done, but you're going to bring harm to your car as well as to yourself and your reputation among your friends. And so that's the point. I mean, like this is true. Yes, you can get the job done, but that's not what it was designed for. In the same way, marriage, if we are to understand how to benefit from marriage, how to live in this relationship, this institution known as marriage, we have to know what it was designed for originally. And that's why Jesus goes all the way back to the beginning. And now in the opening chapters of the Bible, we see the Bible, it actually opens up in many ways with a wedding. It starts with the wedding between Adam and Eve. And what I want us to see in marriage revealed originally is just two things. There's a lot we could talk about here, but I just want to point out two things that Jesus shows us in his biblical ethic and teaching of marriage. And the first is this, is that marriage is between a man and a woman, a male and female. From the beginning, the design and intention of marriage, as God revealed it, was between one man and one woman. Now, I realize that this issue is is a very polarizing issue in our day today, the the issue of same-sex union, same-sex attraction. I realize that it is very difficult. There's not really a common even view within the church at times. And while I don't have time to go into the great details of this issue, uh, what I do want to point out is that if you're interested in learning more about kind of how we as a church view the issue of of same-sex attraction, of homosexuality, and same-sex union, I encourage you to check out our resource paper. We wrote a book called, uh, wrote a paper uh, called Exploring God's Design for Human Sexuality. Uh, it's on our website. If you're on the YouVersion Bible app, there's actually a link at the bottom you can go to. Uh, in addition to that, when that paper was uh, put out, we actually did it in the midst of a sermon series on human sexuality. It was in 1 Corinthians. And so if you would like to learn more and explore just kind of where we stand as a church in this issue, we encourage you to explore those resources. And if you have questions, we'd love to dialogue with you. But what I want us just to see is that there are some people who kind of debate and argue, well, Jesus never really taught on the issue of homosexuality, and so we really aren't sure what he says. But Jesus is being very clear by going back to the beginning. He is showing how marriage was originally designed and set up, that this is how it is to be between one man and one woman. But the second thing that he points to, and I think in some ways is probably even more important for our culture today, is that this idea of leaving and cleaving, of the two becoming one. If you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard that, that phrase, that a man shall leave his, his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That's, some translations even have that word cleave in there. And really what this is talking about is this idea of the two becoming one in a very beautiful and mysterious way. Jesus says this in verse 5, referring to Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now this is not just referring to a physical bond. This is, this is something even far greater than that, far deeper than that. And to help us kind of understand the meaning of the two becoming one, I thought I would turn to a very helpful resource And that is the great wedding toast giver, Michael Scott. So let's take a look at what he has to say about weddings. Hi, I'm Michael Scott. And for the next 40 minutes, 
I am going to be your tour guide through the lives of Phyllis Lappin and Bob Vance. One of the great, seemingly impossible love stories of our time. My name is Michael Scott. Webster's Dictionary defines wedding as the fusing of two metals with a hot torch. Well, you know something? I think you guys are two metals, gold medals. <laughs> that is terrible. That is terrible. Now, clearly, now here, and here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. Obviously, he read the definition of welding, but, but in, in defining wedding. But here's the crazy thing. That word cleave that we see or, or, or hold fast to, that word, it literally means to glue together, to bind together. And oftentimes, this word in the Greek, it's almost always used in terms of bringing metal together. So actually, Michael Scott, in his deluded wedding speech, is actually giving a very good biblical understanding of marriage, that the idea of marriage is not just two people having a good relationship and finding fulfillment relationally, emotionally, sexually, but it is a bonding, a binding together in such a way that it should not, cannot, ought not to be separated. And so this imagery of, of binding, of gluing, of welding together, just as two metal pieces being melted together were never intended to be separated, so is the institution of marriage. That from the beginning, God has set it up between one man, one woman, to be a bond rooted in a covenant and commitment based on longevity, not just on, will you make me happy for the time being? This is what we're trying to see. And so in a lot of ways, Michael Scott has a good theology of weddings, but unfortunately, I don't think our theology of marriage today is as good as Michael Scott's. Because we have come to a place where we see marriage as temporary, as conditional, that it is not to be seen as something as, as lasting for a lifetime. It is not to be seen, as Jesus says in verse 6, the two are no longer they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. We've lost sight of this concept. Marriage, as God revealed it, is designed to be long-term, a commitment for life, inseparable. But we've lost sight of this value of permanence and longevity. We've gotten to the point where marriage is seen less as a covenant relationship rooted in a promise and more as a co consumer relationship that is contingent upon our happiness. Let me say that again. We see marriage less as a covenant relationship that is rooted in a promise, and we see it more as a consumer relationship that is contingent upon our happiness. So much so that if I am no longer being satisfied, if I am no longer happy with you, then the marriage is null and void. I have good reason to leave because the marriage was based upon a desire for my needs to be met, not a commitment, a covenant, a promise. And this is especially true in, in Western culture, where we have gotten to the point where, where we make happiness... And, and frankly, self-centered happiness, the greatest value in our relationships and in our marriages. So much so that if, if you're no longer making me happy, I have good reason and no one would balk at the idea of me stepping out because, well, yeah, if you're not happy, do what you want. Do what makes you happy. Pursue your greatest value, which is your good. And we value this even over and above the vitality of the marriage and the family itself. And because this is such a pervasive mindset, both in the church and outside the church, hear me when I say this is not a problem out there, this is a problem amongst Christians and non-Christians, where we place our own self-centered happiness above the good of our spouse 
and above the good of the institution of marriage. And because this mindset is so pervasive, we all have to be very careful to ask the question, do we know what we are getting into when it comes to marriage? If, if you're on Facebook, you, maybe you've seen this article. It was one of the most posted articles on Facebook for the last several months. It was an article in the New York Times uh, by a gentleman by the name of Elaine de Bolton. And I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name, but I just say it with confidence and it sounds intelligent, right? But the article is called, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. And in it, he talks about how we have come to this point where we not only see happiness as the greatest good, but we try to make happiness permanent and to be the basis of our relationship. And he he says this, he says, we marry to make a nice feeling permanent. We imagine that marriage will help us to bottle the joy we felt when the thought of proposing first came to us. We married to make such sensations permanent, but failed to see that there was no solid connection between these feelings and the institution of marriage. We have diminished the permanence of marriage as God has revealed it originally. And we have inappropriately magnified our own selfish happiness as the greatest good in our relationships. This is true in marriage and in all of our relationships as well. And this is why when it comes to marriage, so many people don't know what they are getting into. And because of this, It should not come as a surprise to see that marriage has been ruptured in our world, in our lives, in our communities. And this is what we turn to next, to see the rupturing of marriage. Like all good things created by God, originally good, marriage has been infected by sin. Marriage is not immune to the brokenness of our sin in this world. And we see the rupturing of marriage played out in so many ways And perhaps while the most contemporary issue is probably around the issue of same-sex union, I would say that the issue of divorce still looms large in our society and in our world, both in the church and outside the church. And while there's, there's great reason to have conversation about all these ways in which marriage has been ruptured, what we see is that Jesus focuses his attention on divorce. And again, I don't, I don't want you to hear me say that this is a soapbox issue. We can't wait for this sermon to come out. This is a tough topic to talk about. It's a sensitive topic. It's a real topic that affects all of us because each and every one of us either have gone through a divorce or know someone personally who has. We are not untouched by this issue. And so I want us to see that although same-sex union is, is an issue we should talk about, divorce still looms large in our eyes in our society. And its consequences in many ways arguably is far greater and further reaching than other consequences of, of the rupturing of marriage. That's why Jesus gives specific attention to this issue when he says, they said, or the Pharisees said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And so this is how they're trying to trap Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Now just to kind of give background here, Moses' command in Deuteronomy 24, he does. There is a concession given for divorce. But we must not read that as something that we should prefer or pursue or promote. That it is a concession given as a way to keep greater indecencies from taking place. An analogy that's not perfect, it's kind of like if you get a speeding ticket, there are ways to kind of keep it off of your record or to diminish the consequence by taking a a driver's course or paying a greater fine or whatever it may be. That doesn't excuse the crime of speeding, 
But there's a concession in our laws that allows an opportunity for this punishment to be diminished. In a similar way, by Moses allowing divorce, he is not saying this is right and good and should be pursued and promoted, but it is something that is allowed in certain circumstances. Now, Jesus makes it clear that this law of divorce is not something we should pursue. It's not something we should prefer. There are exceptions. There are good biblical reasons for why someone should pursue divorce. But it should not be our first resort. It should not be our second, third, or fourth resort. It should be something that we engage in with great sorrow and heartache and grief, knowing that what we are about to enter into is the separation of something that was never intended to be separated, the tearing apart of God's institution of marriage given to us for our good and his glory. My concern is that just like marriage, when it comes to divorce, we don't know what we're getting into. We don't see the far-reaching ramifications of this decision We don't see how it is so pernicious, so destructive, so generationally compounding over time. The shelf life of the consequences of divorce is not three, four, five years. It is ongoing. And like marriage, we don't know what we're getting into when it comes to divorce. And what I mean by this is that that while divorce may be biblically permitted, there are situations where I believe there's good biblical warrant to engage in divorce if they're infidelity. Jesus talks about that here. While there may be good reason to have a divorce, we as a culture, our problem is not that we aren't quick enough to go to divorce, but it's that we are far too trigger happy when it comes to this issue. And I want to be very careful here, that, because like I said, this is not just a theoretical issue. This is an issue that hits very close to home for people in this room. Some of you are in a marriage right now where you feel like the only pathway forward is a divorce. And, and if that is you, hear me say that, that do not be the only person who is having this conversation. Like any major decision we make in our lives, we should never be the only voice speaking into it. And so if you are in a place where you just feel trapped in a toxic, abusive relationship, where you feel like divorce is the only way out, please invite someone into that conversation. Come speak to a pastor. We want to love you and journey with you, grieve with you, suffer with you in that. Please invite others into this conversation. But as I said, I I want us to understand that while there may be good reasons to pursue a divorce, it should never be something we prefer or pursue intentionally with great joy. It should always be done with sorrow and heartache. And just like marriage, we don't know what we're getting into because we don't see the deep-seated consequences that come from the rupturing of this relationship. I don't think we see divorce for what it is and what it does The ripple effects of one ruptured marriage reach far and wide, not just because a relationship has been severed, not just because a family has been divided, although that is terrible. The reason why the the effects of divorce are so far-reaching is because it is the division, the separating of something God has never intended to be separated. As one commentator put it, when we see divorce as a man undoing the work of God, it puts the whole issue in a radically new perspective. When we see divorce in this way, as the rupturing of one of God's good institutions for our good and his glory, that he created for us from the beginning, it shouldn't come as a surprise when we learn that 77 to 83% of mothers and children 18 months after a divorce live in poverty. And many cases show that it extends well on into 10 plus years. 
It shouldn't be a surprise that, that the, the divorce being a rupturing of marriage leads to children who are more likely to engage in, in drug activity, who are more likely to be sexually active before the age of 11, who are more likely to not graduate high school. Why is this the case? It's not just because a relationship has been destroyed. It's not just because a family has been divided. It's because something that God has created for our good and his glory that was never meant to be separated has been torn apart. And again, this, I know, this, this data, it, it's, it's hard to hear it because it just sounds like statistics. And these statistics reflect real people, real stories, real families. And I want to be sensitive to that because I know that this, this story of divorce is something that I'm far too familiar with. That I, my parents were divorced when I was young, when I was about six years old. Um, my, my dad, he was a Christian marriage counselor and actually had an affair with one of his clients. And, and that led our entire family into a tailspin. Myself and my four other siblings, I was a fourth of five, and it led us into just a totally different pathway of life. The majority of my life growing up, raised by my single mom, we lived on welfare for the most of our life. It was not a pleasant thing. We faced a lot of challenges I, I can go into later on. But what I want us to understand is that that divorce, it's, it's not like it's just over. Like, well, once I turn 18, once I get married or whatever, that the consequences fade. You know, my dad was in my life, but not really. There wasn't a real healthy relationship there. And at, at the age of 34, as I now have a boy in my home, I have this great anxiety of, do I know what it's like to raise a boy? I mean, how, how do I be a father to a boy? Because I didn't have that. And I say this not to get pity and not to emotionally manipulate you, but to help us see that when it comes to divorce, we don't know what we're getting into. And we don't know that the consequences do not just last for a short time up until puberty, but they go on well past that in our lives to the point that even now I'm still wrestling with the decisions that my dad made in the heat of a moment that led to him saying, I choose this woman and this child over this woman and these five children. And yes, by God's grace, there's been restoration in our relationship, but the consequences are far-reaching because we don't fully know what we are getting into. But here's the thing, as sorrowful and as painful and as tragic as divorce may be, as a toxic, abusive relationship may be, it is not so far gone that the gospel cannot redeem it. As we've seen, marriage has been revealed from the beginning as God set it up, but marriage has been ruptured by, the, by sin and by the, by the fall of man. But the hope is that as broken as our marriages may be, as, as messed up as our relationships are, they are not so far broken that they cannot be redeemed, restored, and reconciled through the power of the gospel. And what I want us to see now is how marriage and singleness both can be redeemed. And this is where Jesus comes to bear upon our lives when it comes to marriage and divorce. First, when it comes to marriage. When the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done, when that starts to form and inform our lives and our marriages, it changes the way we look at our spouse. Our spouse is no longer the object or the source of my ultimate contentment and happiness because that is found in Jesus. When Christ is my sufficiency and my satisfaction, I am now free of, of having to, I can take the burden off of my wife, off of Megan to say, you are no longer the person who must satisfy every single need of mine that is found in Christ. And because that burden is removed, I am now able to love and enjoy Megan in a way that I couldn't when she was the source of my ultimate satisfaction. This is how the gospel begins to redeem and restore broken relationships. 
You see, the more I root and rest my identity in Jesus and see him as my ultimate contentment and the satisfaction of all of my great needs, the less I am prone to find these things in Megan. And when Christ is my first love and the source of my ultimate identity, I am now free to love and serve Megan without placing upon her the burden that no human was ever designed to bear, which is to be the fulfillment of another person's needs ultimately. But it gets even better than this. When the gospel takes root in our hearts, we are able to begin loving and serving our spouse in such selfless ways where their joy and their good become our chief aim. Just as the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, he says, have this mind that is yours in Christ Jesus, that he considered the needs of others more important than himself by humbly obeying and, and submitting himself, becoming human, suffering as a servant. When that truth impacts us and penetrates our hearts, we now come to see that our joy is not found in our joy, but in the joy of the other. This is the beauty of what the gospel does to our marriages. If I seek to live for my own pleasure either at the expense of or apart from my wife, I will actually find myself eroding away my own joy. And herein lies the irony that in our attempts to find joy by living for our own pleasures, we actually work against the grain of what we are seeking. But when it is our heart's aim to seek the joy of our spouse and pursue their good over and above our own, we find our joy. That is the heart of the gospel as well. But the beautiful thing as well is that the gospel not only gives us the foundation and the framework to love and serve and care for our spouse, but the gospel serves as the foundation to redeem our marriages by being the grounds and the power for pursuing healing, forgiveness, reconciliation, peace, and faithfulness. There's a reason why Matthew records Jesus' teaching about marriage and divorce right after his teaching on forgiveness. That's not a coincidence. Those two must be seen to go together. And so my question for you, if, you, if you're married, if you want to love your spouse well, if you want to understand what it means to have a healthier, more vibrant marriage, yes, there are a lot of great principles and advice we can give, but the true remedy to the problems of our marriage are ultimately rooted in the fact that we pursue our own good above the good of our spouse. And we see them as the answer to all of our needs. And when that is the case, we are setting ourselves up for failure. But when we understand that we are the problem in our marriages and that the true remedy is found in being unconditionally and sacrificially loved, that is what then enables us to love unconditionally and sacrificially. As Nathan shared last week, in order to forgive other people, we must understand how forgiven we are. In the same way, if we want to love unconditionally in our marriages, we must understand how loved we are unconditionally by the Father through Christ the Son. And we will never get there until we come to see that the fundamental problem in our marriages is us. I mean, just Im imagine a marriage where each spouse saw the fundamental problem of their marriage as their own selfishness. And imagine that same marriage where they each saw the joy of the other as their chief good and their chief aim. That to find my joy in your joy and to understand my selfishness is the problem in our marriage. Imagine the health that that would bring about in that marriage and in the relationships impacted by that marriage. We will never get there until we come to see our own selfishness as the true problem 
in our marriage. And Jesus is the only remedy to the problems. If we can understand this and live into this, then we will be better positioned to know what we are getting into. This is how the gospel redeems our marriages. But as I said, it also redeems singleness. If you notice in Matthew 19, in the same breath, Jesus is speaking about marriage, divorce, and singleness all together. And we must not miss how all of these are connected and related. I think it's very important to see this. If you look in verses 11 to 12, it's kind of confusing. But Jesus says, uh, he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, just to kind of clarify, without going to great like, detail on human anatomy, and to make people giggle here, like the, the, the word eunuch here is just describing essentially a person who can't have children and who will not be married for whatever reason. There are a lot of different reasons, but for whatever reason, they will not be married. And so Jesus is referring to single people in this text. And what I want to clarify, what I want to say to single people is this, and really to all of us, but specifically to single people, is that overall the church, the Western American church, in a lot of ways caters to married people with families, with kids. And oftentimes it is at the exclusion of, at the expense of single people. And that is telling a narrative that is not aligned with the body of Christ. And, and we are guilty of that in many ways, and that's something I just I want to name and speak about. And we've gotten to this point where in some ways we, we see singleness as almost this curse. It's like, it's this, you're, you're like on the JV squad, you're, you're a, a class B citizen, that it's not as important as a married person. And what I want us to hear very clearly is that just because you were single doesn't mean you were any less valuable or important than a married person. There's nothing about marriage that grants people a greater status in the family of God or gives them a head start in experiencing the love of God. And there's nothing about being single that makes people inferior in the family of God or inhibits them from delighting in God. Plain and simple, there are challenges that married people have that single people don't and vice versa. And there are joys that single people have that married people don't have and vice versa. But the beautiful thing is about the body of Christ. When we come to trust and treasure Jesus as Lord above all things, we are not just brought into a cool club where we all agree to the same theological doctrines. We are brought into a family where God is our father, where Christ is our elder brother, and where we are together brothers and sisters of one another through Christ. And when, that, when we understand that, it changes the way we look at people in this room and people a part of the body of Christ globally. And when we look at each other through the lens of family, it changes the way we interact with one another. You don't hang out with family members who are just like you. You hang out with your nieces and nephews who are younger. You hang out with your grandmother and grandfather who is older. Why do we not act like family as the family of God? And so what I want to say to us, both as single and married people, practically speaking, is that what this means for our hospitality is that we need to make room for one another especially those who are at different stages and ages of life. It's our default to hang out with people who spend, and spend time with people who are just like us. And, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But that shouldn't be our exclusive diet when it comes to community and relationships in the body of Christ. Whether we are married or single, 
The beauty of what Jesus offers us is the chance to enter into a new family where I said, God is our father, Christ is our elder brother, and we together are brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, nieces and nephews of one another. And when we understand this, this is what we're getting into. When we enter into marriage, when we pursue a life of singleness or, or whether singleness has chosen us, this is what we're getting into. And we have to understand when we look at each other through the lens of family, it changes the way we interact with one another. So, so far we've seen how marriage is revealed, how marriage has been ruptured, and how marriage and singleness have been redeemed. And lastly, we turn to how marriage has been replaced. And in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we see the book ending in almost a similar way in how the book started, with a wedding. The Bible begins with the wedding between Adam and Eve, and in the end of the book, in Revelation 19, we see what is heaven like, what is the image, what is the picture? It's a party, and more specifically, it's a wedding party. Revelation 19, 6 through 8, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. You see, this is what God has been up to from the beginning. This is what we are getting into when it comes to marriage. That our marriages are more than just marriage itself. It's not just about a blissful union. It's not just about kids. It's not just about anniversaries. It's not even just about faithfulness. It is pointing to the greater marriage where we see in Revelation 19 the bringing together of Christ and his bride, the church. Our marriages are telling a different story than just the story of us. It is pointing to something greater. Each and every marriage is meant to prepare us and point us to the great marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. And this is exactly the sentiment behind the words of John Piper in his beautiful book, This Momentary Marriage. And, and on speaking on this very text, he says this, in essence, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said you were permitted to divorce. But I say to you, I have come to conquer the hardness of your hearts. I have come to die for your sins. I have come to count you as righteous. I have come to show you the drama that marriage was meant to represent in my sacrificial, covenant-keeping love for my sinful bride. I have come to give you the power to stay married or to stay single so that either way you keep your promises and show what my covenant is like and how sacred is the covenant bond of marriage. This is what we're getting into. This is what marriage is pointing to. And Christ makes it possible for all of us to enter because he is the true and better bridegroom who will never leave us or forsake us, who will never abandon us, who will never abuse us, whose faithfulness to us is rooted in his own blood shed at Calvary. That through Christ we are able to enter into this blessed union with the true lover of our souls who will never abandon us. And so as we bring all this to a close, I want to just speak to everyone in this room for a second. What all of this means is that regardless of how great and blissful your marriage might be, it pales in comparison to the unspeakable joys of being united with Christ, our true bridegroom, for eternity. 
Marriage is not about a temporal satisfaction with a relationship here. It is pointing us to the eternal satisfaction with Christ forever. And for those of us who are in marriages or who have come out of toxic, abusive relationships, whether we are in a divorce, going through a divorce, have been divorced, considering it, what I want you to hear is that Christ is the true and better bridegroom for you. That although you have experienced abandonment and rejection and abuse, Christ stands as the one to say, no, you are mine forever and ever. And I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And I've proven that by my blood shed on the cross for you. And if you're single, if you're a student, if you're, if you're waiting and looking forward to the day when you are married, let me tell you this. That the longing behind your longing is actually for Christ. And it will not and indeed cannot be replaced with anything less. Because he is what our heart longs for. As St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And lastly, if you're not a Christian, Jesus stands ready and able to invite you into his family and to tell you boldly and emphatically, you are mine now and forever and always. This is what he offers each and every one of us. Will you come to the great lover of your soul who will never abuse you, never condemn you, never degrade you, and never leave you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you, you are a God who loves because you love. That your love towards us, Lord, is not based upon how happy we make you. That if that were the case, we would, we would have a relationship that is deteriorated right on the spot. Lord, we thank you that your love towards us is based upon your covenant, upon your promise. And so, Lord, I ask that your Holy Spirit would bring about a, a deeper understanding of, of the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church, that Jesus stands ready to bring us into a new life. And with that truth and that reality, Lord, would it form and shape our marriages. Lord, I pray for healing for the marriages in this room that are falling apart, that feel hopeless, that feel that divorce and separation is the only path. Lord, would you bring your power to heal and restore that which is broken. And may we all be people who are invested in marriages. May we fight for not only our marriages, but for those that we are in relationship with, Lord. Would you bring healing to our land, to our marriages, and may it all point to your love towards us through Christ. We pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.